0: Acts 19, Um, would you guys mind, I know I'm in your house, but would you mind standing for the reading of God's word? That gets us participating, because we all stand under the authority of God's word, and this is a way to really posture our hearts before God. What I'll do is I'll read the text, Acts 19, the first 10 verses, and then I'm going to pray for our time. Acts 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you have created this this body um, through your redeemed, the body of Christ. What a gift, what a privilege to gather together. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us alone. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone without a church and a body to, to grow within, Lord. We thank you that you have not left us alone without your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you that you have not left us alone without the revelation of your character and plans through your word. And uh, so, Lord, in this time, we want to thank you for all three of those things and really cherish and uh, really lean into what you've provided in the church, your Holy Spirit and your word. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. I pray that you would guide our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would communicate, Lord. Thank you that you have the ability to do what I or no other leader could ever do, and that's speak to individual hearts, where we are, every single one of us. And so in great faith and confidence in who you are, God, we just want to entrust our time to you and ask that you administer to hearts. Uh, People coming in from various backgrounds, various walks, various kinds of weeks, maybe even various kinds of afternoons. And, uh, Father, we ask that you administer in a way that only you can. We thank you. And we praise you, and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Okay, well, Chris Cleaves uh, wrote a novel called Little B. And within it, there's a little portion, it's sort of an aside in the story that sort of stood out to me. And so I want to tell you a little bit about that. It follows, this, this story, this novel follows the life of a young woman who is born in a remote village in Africa and later in her life um, migrates to London, England. But it said that in this village that she grew up within, there was one Bible. There was one village Bible in which was read aloud to all the people. But the problem was that this Bible wasn't a complete Bible, In fact, it was a complete Bible story of God all the way up to, as is recorded in this book, Matthew 27. And then from there on out, it was torn out and the remainder of the Bible Bible was missing. And so because of this Bible, this village Bible that they had, they had knowledge that God was the creator of the earth. They had a comprehension of the character of God in that way. Uh, They understood that God was a generous God, that he created man to give, Uh, to and to allow to flourish and to love. Uh, They they understood that despite God's perfect love and offer of freedom that men and women had rebelled. Uh, They were aware of the reality of sin, uh, the reality of the punishment of sin. They were aware of the path of destruction and the truth about even hell. They understood that there was enmity between God and man and that we were utterly lost and that someone was going to have to repair broken humanity. And they even had enough scripture to be able to comprehend that there was a Messiah that would need to be be sent to humanity. And all of this scripture ramping up, ramping up, ramping up, but then it was torn immediately after Matthew 27. And so let me read a little portion of that. It says this, she says, the end of our religion, as far as any of us knew, was, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We understood that this was the end of the story. This is how we lived, quote, without hope. This was the end, this was the end of their understanding of the story of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> Missing. So th- th- this leaves this sort of question, or at least I, I would think, this scenario that's begging the question for this village like so like what is what's the end of the story? What's the remainder of the story? Jesus lived, he loved, he spoke and then he just died. What's next? Did it work? What what was it all for? Did he did he, did he just die and the story's over? What does this mean for my life? What does this mean for humanity? What does this mean for the world? How does the story conclude? Orson Welles, who was a story writer, great story writer, said, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. Now, I'm not sure how cynical he was being with that, but that's open to interpretation. But what we see from the story of Littleby, and more specifically, what we see in this afternoon's text here in Acts, is that getting the whole story is vital. Getting the whole story is vital. That's going to be kind of the big idea behind this message tonight. Getting the whole story is vital, and then getting that whole story out. Understanding and comprehending the whole story, how important that is for us as believers, but also how important that is in our discipleship, in the message of Jesus getting out into the world, into the west side for you guys. And so we'll begin there with uh, the first point is this. Getting the whole story is vital. Uh, Acts tells us that after Apollos had left Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, he's now in Corinth, that Paul is now coming back through this area, that he's now on his third missionary journey, and he is returning to Ephesus. He had a short amount of time in Ephesus, as is recorded in the chapters previous to this chapter, and now he's back. And upon arrival, or maybe even before he arrives within the city, it says that he meets these 12 men who, Dr. Luke, records and describes as disciples. He meets 12 individuals that Luke describes as disciples. Now, this is really important because these are not opponents to the gospel. These are not people that are opposed to the message of Jesus Christ. Luke does not describe them as pagans or anything like that. These appear to be followers of Jesus Christ, meaning when Paul arrives and meets them, the benefit of the doubt is that these are Christians. These are Christians. The benefit of the doubt, these are believers. And yet, as he begins really to converse with them, he soon realizes that there are some significant holes in the story for them. Look with me in verse two, the very beginning of verse two. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Why this question? Why why this question? Well, this, this is... This is Paul's sort of litmus test, and he gives some insight into why and rationale into why he would ask them this questions in a later letter uh, written to the church in Rome. In in Romans chapter eight, it tells us this. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, speaking to the church, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Listen to this next line. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He's making it pretty plain and simple there. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ. This is an important Trinitarian combination going on here. You see, apart from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit that makes us alive, that awakens our hearts to the truth of the gospel that awakens our hearts to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us, Uh, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit to give us rebirth, which Christ in the gospel says you must be reborn, Uh, apart from this Holy Spirit's work of taking all that Jesus has done and applying it to our lives, apart from his work, any claim of knowing Jesus would be inaccurate. It, It would just be a false claim Apart from the Holy Spirit, no spirit, no Christ. Look at me in the, the second half of verse 2. And they said, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, then into what were you baptized? They said into John's baptism. And Paul, sorry, I like reading into the text a little bit. Of, I don't know. Just, that's how I hear it when I read it. <laughs> In John's baptism, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, this is important, that is Jesus. The one that is to come after John the Baptist, that's Jesus Christ. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. After hearing what? After hearing the whole story. After hearing of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, it's hard to tell. I'm not going to draw any too hard of lines here because it's hard to tell what exactly they comprehended about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what they didn't. And I don't think Luke really spends a lot of time drawing those lines. But what we do know is this. From this passage, we know that they were familiar with John the baptizer. They were familiar with the baptism of repentance, that there was a need to repent, that there was a need to turn from sin and that that we needed to turn away from rebelling against God. And yet they didn't understand what they were to believe in. This is an important equation of repentance. Repentance isn't just turning away from sin, it's about what we are turning to. It's a complete 180, it's a complete about face not just releasing our grip from sin and turning from sin, but turning to something greater. It's what the theologians of old called the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, something better than our sin. Something better than our rebellion. And so in other words, here's what's going on. They had a half gospel. They had sort of a half gospel here with the bad news of sin and guilt which is important in understanding, but bad news nonetheless, without the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The bad news about the reality of sin and that no one can save themselves, and yet without the good news of the finished work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the finished work of Jesus Christ all that God had done on behalf of humanity through Jesus Christ. So reading through the story, it it, kind of reminded me of the story of Humpty Dumpty. Okay, I've got five kids, all right, whatever. (laughs) The story of Humpty Dumpty, you remember, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Ta-da, like, go to bed now. Like, this is where Humpty Humpty Dumpty was, he's broken, irreparable damage. End of story. Sorry, Humpty Dumpty. And there it is. So here's, here's what I was pondering as I was reading through this passage in preparation. If this could happen to these 12 men, could this happen to us? Okay, we're in a very different context, sure. Uh, We're in sort of a post-Christian country where at least the name of Jesus Christ has been heard, sure. But this makes me curious about how many men and women, and I hope that you're listening, how many men and women are carrying on in life sort of like these 12 men, Um, perhaps close enough to the things of God to appear to be true disciples, Uh, having a basic understanding of good and bad and moral and immoral, uh, able to maybe quote scripture or maybe your favorite Christian author, having adopted some external form of religion and external, you know, sort of religious practice, enough to fit in, enough to kind of play the part, enough to, you know, kind of get the benefit of the doubt that there's true change in your life. And yet you have not been reborn and yet without rebirth walking in your own strength, and yet you have not yielded to the Holy Spirit? If the answer is yes, you wouldn't be alone. That was very much my story. That was very much my story. Um, I was raised in a Christian environment. I was raised within the Christian church. I was raised going to services and youth group. I probably participated as an unregenerate individual more than the common Christian. More than you, for sure. Okay, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Because you're not in youth and that's why I had more. Anyways, so attended often. Uh, I was saturated in this sort of Christian environment and yet it wasn't until I was in my early 20s and I was in this car ride with my wife and she, she asked me this question. She says, do you understand the grace of God? Have have you come to understand the grace of God? Similar to Paul's question, what exactly are you believing? My wife, Michelle, was asking me, like, what exactly are you believing about God? Because I don't think it's sufficient. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, this is sort of an awkward conversation. Like, hey, you may appear to be a disciple, but you're not reborn. But I'm really glad my wife had that awkward conversation with me. Right? Right? And the statement that she was making was, you, you've been around this whole thing long enough, you know the lingo, you, you, you sort of fit the part, but I think there, there are some holes in the story for you. And for whatever reason, God chose in his grace to allow that to be the watershed moment, these puzzle pieces of biblical ideas and ideas about God and sort of fragmented parts of the story by God's grace and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit started, these things began to align and it it, it led me to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it came through a really simple question. Do you understand the grace of God? Like, do you understand the whole story of Christ? There's a story in Christian history of a man named John Wesley, uh, who was, arguably one of the most famous evangelists in the last few hundred years. And he was a, definitely a, fa- a famous evangelist in the 18th century. He preached for years and years as an international minister, and yet from his own journals, he, he records that he preached, preached the truth about God, and yet he had not received the grace and mercy of God himself. History says that from 1735 to 1738, he was preaching the gospel in England and America, so international ministry. But he came to this point where he was burnt out on ministry. Uh, A girl broke his heart. It'll do it every time. Uh, He was ready to give up. He was ready to give up. And he came to the end of himself and he realized that something was missing, that there was something missing in his life, there was something missing in this, this equation. The story wasn't lining up. He felt bad about sin. He was trying to do right for God. He was an international missionary. And yet, in one of his journals, he wrote this. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? I'm here to convert people, but who's gonna convert me? Really raw and honest journal entry. See, what he's saying is he was alive to his religion. He was alive to sort of the, the the persona, and yet spiritually dead inside. It wasn't until later on that he reluctantly dragged himself to a Bible study in Aldersgate in London. It says that someone was reading Martin Luther's preface on the book of Romans, the epistle of Romans, and he says this in another later journal entry. While Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now here's the interesting thing. He's familiar with the word of God, he's familiar with the things of God and what to do for God and In this moment, he didn't need a reminder about doing good. He didn't need a reminder about trying hard. He had failed to grasp the whole story of God's rescuing grace. That's what he needed. And that's what made his heart alive in a saving way. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole story of Christ's redemption. And so what is the story of God? What is that whole story? Well, like Humpty Dumpty, the whole world did sit upon a wall, that there was a good creation, and it did have a great fall, and it did break to pieces, and no one could put it together again, not us, not anyone. But God is bringing it all back together again through his son, Jesus Christ. The story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God is reconciling all things unto himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who is mighty to save. who can do what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is why we must put faith and trust and hope and confidence in him, not our ability to do things for him. The whole story. So the whole story is vital. The second point is this. You guys still with me? Okay. Uh, in Stockton, they, they're a little bit more rowdy in response, so this is just a little bit harder to navigate, but I'm just going to trust that you guys are still with me. The gospel story is central to discipleship. Now, notice, I'm going to put the emphasis on a word. The gospel story is central to discipleship. I'm sure you understand the gospel is central to discipleship, but the gospel story... You see, story has always been a central component in spiritual formation among God's people. Let me give you an illustration of this. In Exodus chapter 20, the famous passage where we see the Ten Commandments, the the giving of the law from God through Moses to the children of Israel. Before God lays out the Ten Commandments, he begins with a story. He tells them a story, a story of their redemption. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now, this is really important order of things. He reminds them of the story of redemption. He reminds them of the story, and then he gives them clarity about life. Here's what I'm getting at. Bullet point truths are not sufficient. Okay, we love bullet points. We love quick we love the easy, just, just boil it down, condense it, just, just give it to me in a statement. And we see as we open up the scriptures that God is rarely satisfied in giving us truth in that sort of way. The Old Testament, for instance, is 77% story. This is why. Because as has been said before, stories are the only containers big enough to carry truth. Truth. Stories are the only container big enough to carry truth. Stories shape our worldview. We are formed by the stories that we believe. We are formed by the story and plot lines that we are believing in. Now, the interesting thing is this isn't just a Christian thing. Let me me give two examples of storylines that shape our worldview. The first storyline is this, the American dream. The American Dream was a storyline that attempted to answer questions like this. Uh, What is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What's gone wrong? And what is there to look forward to? And embedded into the story of the American Dream, it found answers in things like bigger and better and stable economics and white picket fences and so on and so forth. I'm sure you're familiar with the American Dream. Second example is this, for the newer generations, the storyline is living the authentic and free life, okay? So it's not so much about the American dream as much as it is living an authentic life of freedom, not necessarily concerned about the highest paying jobs, Uh, not necessarily concerned about stability in the workplace as much as we are concerned about authenticity and freedom. According to one recent survey, I believe it was Barna. I didn't write it down. I know I should have done that, but I think it was Barna. Uh, They said this, Millennials' average tenure at a job is two years. I I love it. I had shaking, like, oh, Lord, help us. (laughs) Two years. Average tenure at a job, two years. And some of you are like, I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm in L.A. Why? Because the story... That storyline of authenticity, that storyline of personal freedom is that compelling. And men and women are willing to sacrifice a lot of things like job and finances and stability in order to live that out. Very different stories, very, very different stories, but equally powerful and gripping. Stories shape our world view. And as we see here in Acts 19, within these 10 verses, it's going to go on to talk more about these sort of interactions in Ephesus, but just within these 10 verses, we see that Paul finds himself in three distinct contexts, uh, with what we can assume is three different worldviews, three different storylines among these peoples. we first uh, see his interaction with these disciples of John the Baptist, uh, with their What we presume is their half story about God that is guiding their lives. We have that context he speaks into. Uh, Later we see he's with the people of the synagogue for uh, three months. Uh, A people, uh, what we presume to be a, a predominantly Jewish audience within synagogue there in Ephesus, and then later on in the story, we see that he is there at the hall of Tyrannus, which would have probably been a very academic environment. So among the disciples of John the Baptist, among uh, the Jewish audience, and then, and then among sort of the academic audience and environment at the hall of Tyrannus. Three different contexts, three different, or what we can assume is three different worldviews. And yet, here's the interesting thing about this passage: the Apostle Paul finds in each context an opportunity to incorporate one particular message, one particular story. In verse four, it tells us he's communicating the message of Jesus. In verse eight, he's communicating to the Jewish audience the story of the kingdom of God. And in verse 10, he's communicating the word of the Lord, the message of Christ, the story of the kingdom of God, and the word of the Lord, incorporating within these three particular environments with what we can assume is three different storylines, one particular message, and that is the message of Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is, for the remainder of our time, is talk about, uh, sort of dive into some application, what that looks like for us, 21st century, what that looks like maybe potentially for you guys, 21st century west side. Uh, the first point is this. How do we do this? With context. Point number one is with context. Now, in my city, the city of Stockton, we, there are words that appear often in our city that help us to identify the value system of our city and really to grasp the story that people are believing or at least hoping for in the city of Stockton. There are four words that pop up everywhere. These, revitalize. Reinvent, restore, renew. I mean, these are these are massive uh, buzzwords within the city of Stockton. You can't go anywhere without coming across at least one of these words. And this is the big push among uh, uh, sort of in City Hall and whatever influence City Hall has. This is a big push among businesses, particularly small business, small businesses. And this is a big push among individuals to revitalize, to reinvent, to restore, to renew the city of Stockton. And this has a lot to do with the history of our city. The history of Stockton, as you probably already know, has had a very rough history from the very beginning. Or at least you comprehend that it's had a rough history as of late. Um, But the storyline of Stockton, the storyline of our context has always been a, a story of surviving, trying to overcome, trying to sort of get out of the hole. Uh, For us, there's a ton of racial tension, a ton of gang violence, a ton ton of um, drug-related turf wars, wars, which has led to high crime rates. Uh, We sort of face a rude awakening when we moved to Stockton. Within the first year, I watched my next-door neighbor die by a drive-by. Uh, within a year, moving uh, to Stockton from the city of London, England, big, tran- uh, big change here, to the city of Stockton, six o'clock in the afternoon, eating dinner with my family, open the door to watch my neighbor die from a drive-by shooting. I've never felt more helpless in my life, watching him roll on the ground. And we realized that this is a very new context with some very real hopes and dreams and aspirations. Um, Within the city of Stockton, there's uh, always been fickle economics. If you've followed uh, the news nationally, you you know that within the last, I don't know, it was like five or six years ago, the city of Stockton filed for bankruptcy. It was the largest city to file for bankruptcy before Detroit went and knocked us out of that place. So Detroit, Stockton, sort of really similar stories, actually. Uh, poor city planning, which led to constant restructuring it 's always restructuring uh, our city and city planning and all that sort of thing it 's really the story is always about trying to fix trying to repair now here 's the interesting thing this this isn 't just our context it is our context context but it 's not just our context this is our bridge Th- this is our opportunity because We, as a church, within our mission and vision as a church, we are a people seeking the renewal of our city. Now, we believe that that is done through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but our aim is similar, and that is renewal, to see our city transformed, not just people saved and converted, but to see our city renewed by the grace and power of God. And so what this does is it becomes an open door for conversations, Conversations like this. Hey, before we talk about restoring, let's talk about the way things ought to be. How do you define the way things ought to be? We're restoring here. What are we restoring it back to? What are we reinventing? What is the goal? What 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 is the what is the, the what are we trying to get back to? And, and before we talk about fixing the problems, let's discuss what the problem is. What does lie at the heart of the struggles and the pains of our city. Is it just crime? Is it just finances? Is there something deeper going on that is leading to, this, to these problems over the last 150 plus years? Is it just crime? Is it just finances? If we fix that, is that really going to fix our city? And it leads into, by God's grace, opportunities to have conversations like this. Can I tell you what the Bible says about the way things ought to be? And can I tell you about what the Bible says? What has gone wrong? What lies at the heart of these struggles? What lies at the heart of this crime? What what lies at the heart of our our pain as a city? And can I tell you what the Bible says, um, really, or who, rather, the Bible says is truly able to restore and renew? This story becomes an opportunity for discipleship. Now, here's the question. This is my city. But the question for you as a church is what are the compelling stories that are shaping men and women in your city? Have you identified the narratives that are prevalent in in the West Side? What are the the buzzwords? What are the values? What are the storylines that people are believing and therefore following? What what are the storylines that are shaping people's lives? Stories shape lives. What are those stories? We're believing some story. It's not a matter of are we believing a story. The matter is what story are we believing and how is that shaping our lives? And lastly, what are the ways that the good news of Jesus Christ can speak to these? What I wanna do is just briefly address something in this passage. After after, uh, the Apostle Paul laid his hands on these disciples, it says that they received the Holy Spirit and they began to prophesy and speak in tongues. we as a church just celebrated Pentecost Sunday. So this is really uh, heavy on my heart, really to see that this wasn't just something strange. This, this was not just something to show something and to be a display, but this was God's um, pouring out his Holy Spirit to reach the nations. On the day of Pentecost, it says that all the nations under the sun were gathered there in Jerusalem, and as the Holy Spirit fell upon these men and women, they began to speak in tongues, and the people were like, I hear the gospel in my own language. And so here in the context of Ephesus, we see that the word of the Lord began to spread to Jews and Gentiles. What we believe is that God gifted the church to communicate the gospel in the language of the culture. So what I believe that means is that the Holy Spirit empowers us, his church, to do the same thing, to speak the language of our culture, to communicate the timeless, life-giving truth of Jesus Christ in a way that can be understood where God has planted us. that's the prayer. This task requires prayerfulness. This is not just being culturally savvy. Okay? This requires nothing less than the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Nothing less than the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is not just, uh, just being culturally savvy and doing your homework and research. This requires prayerfulness and empowering. The second thing we see is this, with clarity. We saw with context. Secondly, with clarity. Now, our relationship with the culture is a very complicated relationship, to say the least. It's sort of like that relationship with with someone where they they say they want something, but they they don't really want it. Okay, maybe you've been in a relationship like this. I don't want a gift for Valentine's Day, which means I I really want a gift for Valentine's Day. Or uh, don't make a big deal about my birthday, which means you better make a big deal about my birthday. Our culture is constantly saying things like this, statements like this. Don't make such absolute statements. Don't make such absolute statements. Now, this is just my guess, but I believe that that is really a voice saying, I'm starving for clarity. I'm starving for clarity. In our culture where objective facts are less influential in in shaping thoughts, um, than appeals to emotion are, and appeals to personal belief. Clarity has never been more needed. Okay, For the sake of proving that that second point, let me say that one more time. Clarity has never been more needed. Clarity. Listen to these words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church, the Colossians church. He said this, pray also for me. This, This is the way that I want you to pray for me that God may open to us a door for the word. Opportunities to share the story of God. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul praying for opportunities and then when those opportunities open up that he would be as clear as possible because he has this distinct conviction, because that's the way I ought to communicate. Because that's the way I ought to communicate. N.T. Wright put it this way an essential part of our theological and missional task today is to tell this story as clearly as possible and to allow it to subvert all other ways of telling the story of the world that is the essential task of the missional and theological church to tell the story of god in such a clear way that it subverts all other ways of telling the story of the world remember There are stories out there that are attempting to tell the story of the world. American dream is one of them. The the dream of authenticity and freedom is another. There are many, many worldviews attempting to tell that story. And N.T. Wright says it is our task today to tell that story as clearly as possible. And so how do we do that? I want to offer three brief ways that we can do that as the church. The first of which is this. Identify the truths about God and then undergird those. So in our context, there is a value of renewal. That is an opportunity, a truth of God's character that we have now the opportunity to undergird and say, you know what, that's our value too. Renewal. Now, I don't know your story, but I can imagine uh, Southern California, Los Angeles area value of creativity and creating. There's an opportunity to undergird that too. That is God's character. He's a creative God who creates. And so we identify the truths about God and we undergird those. Secondly, we identify the lies about God and we undermine those. I remember someone uh, telling me when I got into pastoral ministry, he said, half of your ministry will be deconstructing. Just plan on 50% of everything you say, tearing down what has falsely been raised in the name of God. Okay, there are a lot of false notions. The 20th century set us up for a lot of deconstruction in America when it comes to the gospel message, a lot of deconstructing. And so we identified the lies about God and we undermine those. We had my wife and I just last week had an opportunity to talk with some neighbors who were raised in the church who have not been back to church in multiple decades. Within one conversation we were able to just just re- through real simple conversation deconstruct some things that have been holding them back from pursuing a relationship with Jesus for 20 years. Just false notions. And so we identify the lies about God and we, by God's grace, undermine those. Now, the assumption is we don't do that pridefully. Don't do that pridefully, okay? We don't step in with all the answers. But by God's grace, using the authority of God's word and the truth found therein, we allow those truths to undermine lies about God. And then third and finally, we identify what's missing and then we begin to uncover those. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing here in Acts. He's uh, building upon the truths, he's undermining the lies, and now he's identifying what's missing and doing the long-haul approach ministry of uncovering those things, uncovering the truths of of God, beginning to to show uh, these disciples and within the synagogue and the hall of Tyrannus what is maybe missing in their story, pointing them to the whole story story. Of God. And so we do that with context. We do that with clarity. Third, and finally, we do that with consistency. We do that with consistency. Look with me in verse 9 and 10. It says that we're reasoning, in the second half of verse 9, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all of the residents, now think about all these words being said here, Continue for two years, so that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, two quick notes about that passage. The first is this. If you have the English Standard Version Bible, you will notice that there's a little brief footnote at the bottom of the page that says something like this. Some manuscripts add from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. In other words, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So somewhere along the line, scribes that were... uh rewrite, not rewriting, but uh, doing what scribes do and making multiple copies, that's what I was looking for, of the Bible, sort of inserted that as commentary and it got kind of pushed into scripture and then bounced back out. But this is important because the scribes who who serve as sort of historians for us noted that they were there at the Hall of Tyrannus every day from 11 to 4 p.m. Now this would have been the hottest point of the day. This would have been where everyone left to like siesta or go home where it was cool or whatever. Uh, The the hall would have been used probably for academic use up until that point and then they rented the hall, this is is our guess, from 11 to four to communicate the truth of the gospel every day. Here's the second thing we see about this passage. Paul and the other disciples continued for two years. Now Acts is goofy like that whole chapters dedicated to one event one verse two years okay one chapter significant events don't get me wrong one verse two years now this is this is really really important because we want the we want the one event one chapter kind of life we want the one event one chapter kind of church And it says that they're showing up every day, multiple years, doing the work of faithful ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, how how does this whole region says, all of Asia, all the residents of Asia, how did this whole region hear the life-giving message of Jesus and how did this message spread to multiple uh, cultures and multiple contexts and multiple languages? Now, we know the theological answer is by the grace and power of God. What was the means? What we can assume from this passage is the means was long-haul faithfulness. Long-haul faithfulness among the disciples of God. Showing up. Listen, being present. Just showing up. Being present. In other words, being consistent. If I may exhort, really encourage you guys as a church, collective church, in a world that is absolutely erratic and ever-changing and constantly moving, Strive by the Spirit's power to be consistent. I think within our culture, there is true value in consistency. It is worth its weight in gold. To show up and be consistent and be there for the long haul, knowing that sometimes whole chapters get dedicated to one event and sometimes one verse gets dedicated to years to years. And yet we see the fruit. What's the fruit? The word of Jesus spreads across the region. Everyone within the region, both Jewish and Gentile, hear the message of Jesus Christ by God's grace through the means of a consistent church. Let me conclude with this. Um, As we step back from this passage and we see these steps being taken in Acts, we're not just seeing a strategy for mission. I don't want to conclude with that. This is not just a strategy for faithful ministry and mission within your context. What do we see? First and foremost, we see the embodiment of Jesus. You see, because before these are things that we do for Jesus, before these are things that we do for the sake of Jesus and in the name of Jesus, these are first things that He has done for us. In the Apostle John's gospel, in what the section of the Apostle John's gospel that's called the gospel prelude, it says this in John 1.14, speaking of Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, the Son of God didn't just study our context from afar. The the Son of God didn't just sort of get familiar and study our world and study our lives and study our context. The truth of the gospel is that he stepped into it. The incarnation tells us that Christ came to dwell with humanity, to step into our humanity, to step into our lives, to step into our mess to step into our suffering, to step into our sin, to step into all of our storylines. It says that he did so full of grace and full of truth. Yes, full of grace, full of compassion, full of gentleness, but with the sort of clarity that brings life to our souls. With the sort of grace and truth that he brought through my wife some decade ago, in that car ride, so that I would come to know the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. Graceful clarity. And it tells us in the, math, in the Gospel of Matthew that after his uh, death and resurrection, as he was commissioning his church, the great commission, go and make disciples. Baptize uh, them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. He says this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. I am with you constantly. I am with you consistently. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I'm with you. I want to close with a quote from Flannery O'Connor, a 20th century British writer. She said this, There's something in us, as storytellers and as listeners, to stories that demand the redemptive act. As we read through stories, we, we, we're waiting for that, that turn. We're waiting for the redemption. We're waiting for uh, the twist that demands that what falls at least be offered the chance to be restored. The reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so. But what he has forgotten is the cost of it all. So, what I want it to do in this time as we transition into a time of responding, I want to not only step back and look at this passage as a strategy for reaching our city and faithful ministry. Let it serve as a reminder of the person and the work of Jesus Christ who stepped into our context, full of grace, full of truth, and has promised to consistently be with us. And as we go to the table, as we take communion, as believers today, take communion. Let's together remember the cost of redemption and restoration. This isn't just merely a conclusion to a story. This is a conclusion to the story that cost Christ everything so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be restored, so that we could be reconciled to our Father through faith in Jesus Christ, amen? Let's pray.